scriptures this morning to the book of Exodus. Before turning to the book of Judges, Exodus chapter 18, page 76 in the Pew Bible. And here we read how the whole institution of judges came into existence in Israel. And that'll help us understand um, the passage in Judges 4 and 5 when we deal with Deborah the judge. So we'll read uh, chapter 18 at verse 13 to the end. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear themselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over people, the people, as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Now we'll turn to the book of Judges and read Judges chapter 4 and 5. The two chapters really go together. It's all uh, related to the work of God in the time of Deborah. Chapter 4 is the the story of the Lord's salvation, and chapter 5 is the song that Deborah and Barak sang, celebrating the Lord's uh, victory. And in that song, we learn a few things about uh, some of the events in chapter 4. So we'll read those two chapters together. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, 
for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Za'anamin, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, 
until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Then sang Deborah and Barak the song of Abinoam, uh, sorry, the son of Abinoam on that day. This is then this, this song. That the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers seized in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The prince of Issachar, princes of Issachar, came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, standing by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came. They fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan at Taanach by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? 
Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoiled of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. We'll be focusing in the preaching this morning on Judges 4, bringing in, bringing in a little bit from Judges 5, but we read that once together. We don't uh, need to repeat it again. After we've heard the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing together Psalm 20, stanza 3 and 4. Some boast in chariots, some boast in horses, but we boast in the Lord our God. Psalm 20, stanzas 3 and 4. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we make our way through this book of Judges, we notice a pattern, a very consistent and even a, a very sickening pattern. No sooner does the judge whom the Lord raises up to rescue Israel, no sooner does he die than the people fall back into idol worship. In many ways, reading through Judges, you can say it's a depressing book. There are 12 judges mentioned in this book, and by the time we get to the 12th judge, Samson, we've got just about the, the worst kind of character and the worst kind of situation for God's people. And we are at a loss, after 12 of them, we're at a loss how Israel is ever going to get out of the rut of their sin. They keep going back to their sin. We might wonder that about ourselves sometime. How am I going to get out of the rut of my sin? The cycle is always the same in this book. They sin, the Lord punishes, they cry out for help, the Lord saves, they sin again. It never stops. If you look at the people... If you look at the characters in this book, you'd only have reason to despair. But if you look at the Lord and what God is doing, then you have reason for hope. The sin of the people is pretty much always the same. It's the dull and predictable idol worship and all the evil which flows out of that. But the salvation of the Lord is altogether different. It is always fresh. It is always surprising. It is unpredictable. And it's amazing in its grace and power. We might be unfaithful. We might break our covenant promises with the Lord. And the Lord may well indeed correct us and discipline us for that. But the Lord from His side never breaks His promises. He never drops his commitment, but he is determined to raise up a Savior for his people, a great and final Savior who can once and for all set his people free from the idolatry of their hearts. That's the biggest problem in this book, in this life. 
And that's the larger message of Advent. That's the larger message and the, the gospel message of this book of Judges and also of our text this morning. It's not a story about Deborah or Barak or Jael in the first place. They're in the story. And they have their place, but it's not a story about them. Nor is it an epic showdown between the Israelites and the Canaanites. No, this is a story about the Lord. About the Lord our God sticking to His covenant word and glorifying Himself in delivering His church from their misery. And so I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. The Lord glorifies Himself in saving Israel from Canaanites. We'll see two things. Israel's shame and Israel's glory. I mentioned there are 12 judges. So, although there are 12 of these judges and 12 stories in this book, certain things stay the same in those stories, it's also true that certain things change. And it's important as you read through the book to take note of the changes in the different stories. Those changes point us to a lesson uh, the particular lesson the Lord wants us to learn in each case. And in each story, we see a new enemy being used to punish Israel. That's, that's part of the change. We've already encountered, encountered Kushan Rishathaim. You recall that fella. He was the offspring of Nimrod from Mesopotamia. He was a, a child of the ancient God-hating people in whom was the spirit of Babel. We've also seen the Moabites join, join forces with the offspring of Esau to invade the land from the other side of the Jordan. That was another blast from the past. And they got the upper hand over Israel. It was humiliating for Israel to have Eglon, king of Moab, rule over them from Jericho of all places. And now in this third major story, I know I'm leaving Shamgar out, to the side, I don't know if we'll come back to him sometime, maybe, but for today we leave Shamgar out. In this third major story, we read this, verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. So this is a different enemy again. The first two enemies were from the outside. This one comes from within the land of Canaan itself. Jabin reigns in the city of Hazor, that was in the north, in Galilee, and he's a Canaanite. In fact, he is called Jabin, king of Canaan. We should be asking ourselves a question, like, like an Israelite would, would, from a generation or two earlier, would certainly be asking, how can a Canaanite be ruling over Israel? Doesn't the land of Canaan belong to Israel now? And then it's not just any king that has arisen, but it's this fella by the name Jabin. The Israelites know all about the house of Jabin from the city of Hazor. This, this name Jabin is very likely a title, like the name Pharaoh is a title for the Egyptian king, so there were many pharaohs in the history of Egypt. There were a number of Jabins 
in the history of Hazor and Canaan. Well, a few generations earlier, Joshua had led a campaign against an earlier Jabin, king of Hazor, who already in his day had many horses and chariots. That was their thing, horses and chariots. Joshua 11, maybe you, you want to read that with the family at some point today, Joshua 11. Well, in that day, Jabin was the most powerful king in the northern part of Canaan, and he rallied all the other kings around him to attack Joshua and the Israelites. But we can read in Joshua 11 that the Lord defeated all of them, all those kings before Joshua. And those iron chariots of, of Jabin, they were no problem for the Lord. In fact, we can read that Joshua burned all the chariots. He hamstrung all the horses. He killed all of the kings and he burned the city of Hazor to the ground. Just like he did with Jericho. Jericho is in the south. That was the first city it conquered by Israel at the Lord's command. It, you remember, was devoted to destruction at the Lord's command. It was, it was meant to be a city for the Lord. All of its first fruits went to the Lord. Well, something similar was done with Hazor. It's the only city that was burned to the ground in the north. Hazor is like the Jericho of the north. It, it was wiped out, its army destroyed. The Jabins were no more when Joshua was finished with it. But lo and behold, here in Judges 4, a few generations later, we've got Jabin appearing. The, the line has resurrected. Hazor has somehow been resettled. And the iron chariots are running roughshod over the heads of the Israelites. You see, brothers and sisters, this is a stunning reversal that should have never come about. And that is to Israel's great shame. The fact that Canaanites were left alive in the land, you can read that in Judges 1 and 2, contrary to God's original command, that was already shameful, shameful for the Israelites. But the fact that the Israelites failed to keep the Canaanites at bay that Israel never sought the Lord's help in preventing Hazor from being rebuilt and preventing the line of the Jabins from rising up, that was even more to their shame. They just let it happen. They had allowed the wicked Canaanites, the Yahweh-hating Canaanites, they had allowed them to flourish inside the Promised Land, and now these Canaanites have the upper hand over Israel. In fact, they've got them enslaved. We've seen this kind of language before. The Lord, says Judges 4, sold Israel into the hand of Jabin. So Jabin was their master, their owner. And then we read in verse 3 that Jabin's right-hand man, Sisera, oppressed the people cruelly for 20 years. Some of the same verbs have been used already earlier in history to describe Israel's slavery in Egypt. It was a cruel oppression in Egypt. We've got a cruel oppression here, but this time it's in the land of promise. You see, Israel is back in slavery. Oppressed again by chariots, just like the Egyptians had chariots. Only this time it's, it's in their own land, and that is on them, beloved. 
It's their own idol worship and lack of trust in God that has created this heartbreaking circumstance. And so their shame before the Lord is, is great. It's like a mountain. And beloved, that's a, this is a lesson for us. In a very real way, the gods we choose to serve, if we choose to serve false gods, those gods will become our master and they will oppress us cruelly because all such gods are rooted in sin and rebellion. That's where Israel is at. And yet there's still more, more to their shame. It starts to come to light in verse 4. And I translate a bit literally now. It literally reads, Now Deborah, a woman, that's missing from the ESV, Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. The fact that Deborah is a woman, that's not something the author had to say because it's already implied in the fact, in her name, Deborah, and in the fact that she's a prophetess. But he adds that, that specific description to highlight that she's a she. The Holy Spirit's saying there's something unusual here. Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, was judging Israel at that time. But to be clear, the shame I'm talking about is not in Deborah herself, not at all. She is a bright light of faithfulness. She's a beacon of hope, actually. She's an agent of the Lord who has bucked the trend of her own people, and she has remained faithful to the Lord. She's a prophetess. The shame in this circumstance is what's gone missing from Israel. What's missing is the men. There's no men to lead, and specifically, no men to judge, to do that work of judging. As Israel consistently and quickly turns its back on the Lord and on the Lord's law over the generations, as Israel descends into idolatry, the men who had once been appointed to maintain the covenant law of God, the judges then, they're nowhere to be found. People have to, have to go to Deborah for judgment. There's no judges around. And that's the greater shame of Israel still. What Judges 4 really shows, brothers and sisters, is a, a crisis in Israel's leadership. A crisis that will only get worse as the book goes on. It's been hinted at in the first two judges, Othniel and Ehud, simply by the fact that they were solitary, singular figures saving and judging Israel. But the fact is, there was never just to be one judge judging Israel. That's not the way God set it up. We read that from Exodus 18. Moses, and that was through his father-in-law's uh, suggestion, and that came from the Lord, Moses had implemented a system, or you could say a network of judges throughout the tribes. And we read this, Moses chose able men 
out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case was brought to Moses, but any smaller matter they decided themselves. There was a network of judges. It's kind of like the court system that we know in our country, where there's, there's different courts at, in different places in the country and at different levels and jurisdictions. Local leading men in Israel, they were appointed to judge civil cases. There would have been, and there should have been, hundreds of judges throughout the land. And when they were judging, what would the standard be by which they would judge? To what would they appeal? What law would they be upholding in the land of Israel? Well, there can only be one law. The covenant law of the Lord. The, the Ten Commandments to start with, but all the other laws that were taught them by Moses. Well, now we're starting to see how this fell apart. For what happens to respect for God's covenant law when people turn away from the Lord and they start worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs? Who among the Israelites is going to truly care about upholding the law of the Lord, about loving neighbor as themselves, and loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind, when they're out there worshiping the Baals? So what's going on in the background in, in this whole time period is that the system of judges who would have upheld God's covenant law, that system is falling apart. No respect for Yahweh means no respect for his law, which means nobody's got concern to judge right from wrong. Who cares about that? They've let that go. And isn't that the mantra of the book of Judges? That sums up this whole period as the book winds to a close. You know that famous saying, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what people were doing. From Othniel to Samson, everyone did what was right in his own eyes because the judges were gone. The book is called Judges, but in truth, there's hardly any left. We could call this book No Judges. We could call this whole time period the time period of the No Judges. The 12 that were raised up mentioned in this book that were band-aid solutions to the underlying problem of a people who had abandoned the Lord and His law. Serving idols necessarily means abandoning the law of God. You ever stop to think about that? If you change the God you worship, you change the laws by which you live. It can't be otherwise. If you serve money, guess what? You don't care about the Eighth Commandment. Do not steal. If money is your God, you will hoard it, or you will hurt to get it, or you will steal, or you will manipulate your neighbor to get rid. You don't care if money is your God. You don't care about the Sixth Commandment to love your neighbor. You don't care about the Eighth Commandment. You don't care about the Tenth Commandment not to covet. If you serve the God of sex, you don't care about the Seventh Commandment. You will indulge your sexual appetite, whether it's with porn or hookups or fornication or adultery or prostitutes or whatever. 
If you serve the God of fame, the God of respect, that's what you want more than anything. You want to build up a legacy for yourself. If that's your God. You won't have any interest in building up the kingdom of God and bringing glory to the name of the Lord, like we sang from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. You won't care about that. God's law, what is that? That's just a description of the way of life, the way to live in harmony with the Lord. So whatever idol or God you serve, you will automatically adopt the way of life of that God. Like the Lord Jesus said, nobody can serve two masters. You will always only serve one. Which master are you serving? Israel's shame is great. She has abandoned the Lord and his law. There are no heads of tens and fifties and hundreds and thousands to hold court and resolve disputes and keep justice. The leaders don't care about that. The Israelites, who do seek justice, they have, they're forced to go, like in the days of Moses, to a single person. And who can they trust to, to hand out just judgments of the law? Well, the only person they, they have available to them is Deborah, the prophetess. It wasn't her job description, but she's the only one. Throughout the Bible, we can read of God raising up prophetesses. That's not so unique here. Mostly, prophetesses were consulted. They didn't go out and publicly proclaim like uh, an Elijah or an Isaiah or a Jeremiah, but they were there and they were often consulted, like a Huldah, for example. But in all the Bible, there was only one woman who was said to judge the civil matters for the people of God, and that's this Deborah. She's an anomaly. An anomaly born out of necessity because of the, the failure on the part of God's people. She's filling in out of compassion because she's the only person with any office who still loves the Lord, who still knows and upholds His law and loves His people enough to hand out justice. Can you see in Deborah an outline, a shadow of the coming Savior Jesus? When Jesus was raised up by God in his time, what kind of state were the judges and the rulers in in his day? We know there were lots of chief priests and Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the judges. There were lots of them. But for all the, the many rulers that existed, Scripture says this, when Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless because the judges over them were useless at their task. In Jesus' day, it was again the time of the no judges, even though there were many in office. Many exercising authority, making themselves rich, but none who were interested in shepherding the people of God according to the truth of the God's law. None except the Lord Jesus Christ. God puts Deborah there in the midst of that 
emptiness, that vacuum. This is the style of God, beloved. Where we humans neglect our duty or fail to keep our promises, the Lord does His duty and keeps His word. He does that in unexpected ways that shows over and again that He and He alone is Savior and in Him alone is found the glory, the real glory of Israel. For among the differences in this third major story in the book of Judges, is just how visible the hand of the Lord becomes. When you read the Othniel story and the Ehud story, the Lord is clearly in the background, but He's not overtly mentioned. Those two figures are clearly the heroes in human eyes, but here in this story there is confusion among the, the human leaders. Deborah doesn't take up military command, but Instead, she commands Barak, who turns out to be a reluctant army leader. And when Deborah agrees to go with Barak, as Barak demands, she adds this sting, stinging rebuke, verse 9, Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. There's that woman theme again. Men no longer want to serve as judges, in Israel, and men barely want to serve as army leaders. It's all to the shame of, of the men in particular, but to the nation as a whole. And so the Lord raises up two women to put the men to shame. Jael, the woman, will finish what Barak only reluctantly started at the command of Deborah. But more than the intrigue of JL or the strategies of Barak, we need to see how the Lord is front and center in this rescue effort. It starts with Deborah's first message to Barak, verse 6. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I, it's the Lord speaking, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, and his chariots with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. The Lord gives a command, the Lord plots out the strategy, I'm going to draw out Sisera, the battle's going to happen down by the Kishon, and I will give Sisera into your hand. For Othniel and Ehud, there's no such message recorded. And this comes out again in verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day which, in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? And the battle is the toughest one yet. Not only is the leadership weak and in disarray, but they face Sisera and his 900 iron chariots. That's mentioned a few times in this chapter. And it's mentioned because they were feared weapons in the hand of the enemy. And Israel had none of them. Israel only had foot soldiers. They didn't even necessarily have all the equipment, as Deborah mentions in her song. Sisera, with his iron chariots and his fast horses, they controlled all the roads down in the flat valleys. You see, the Israelites were living mostly in the hills, 
And the Canaanites controlled the flatter areas in the Valley of Jezreel and the coastal plains. Those were areas that were very valuable for crop growing and uh, business, and the merchants would travel those roads. So whoever controlled the roads and the valleys controlled the flow of money, you see. And Sisera had 900 of these things. Chariots had speed. They also had height over foot soldiers. With one man driving a, a team of horses, there'd be another soldier on board on the chariot, and he would be free to shoot the arrows as they went along. Well, you can imagine a chariot team, or a number of them, could easily overcome enemy troops and pick them off with a rain of arrows. A fleet of 900 of these chariots could not be beat on level ground. No wonder Barak was afraid. No wonder he hesitated. But the Lord does not hesitate. He doesn't even blink an eye. In fact, he promises to Israel not just a little win, not just a, a, a kind of a, a victory for the short term, he promises a blowout victory. And as we read in verse 15, that's exactly what happened. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. Well, how did the Lord do that? We, we don't read it in Judges 4. It doesn't actually say how the Lord does it there. But Deborah sings about it in her song. That's why we read chapter 5, verse 20. From heaven the stars fought, from their courses, they fought against Sisera. So that's some kind of reference to the, the stars and, and, and nighttime um, probably deception being used to, to trick the uh, forces of Sisera. But then, it comes, then comes the, the real uh, way that the Lord beat them. Verse 21, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. So the Lord had indeed drawn out Sisera and his troops down to the river Kishon. Now, the Kishon, that was no, not thought to be a threat to, to Sisera in any way because the Kishon was, for the most part of the year, a dry gully. The chariots could just ride right through this thing. It, it was only in the rainy season that it would be filled with water, and they were at this point in the the summer season, the dry, hot season. But evidently, contrary to the expectations of the, the season, the Lord sent a massive rainstorm that quickly filled up the dry riverbed, flooded its banks, <clears throat> and turned all the dry ground around into mud. Well, chariots in mud, guess what? That didn't work too well. Chariots on dry ground are deadly weapons. But chariots stuck in the mud are nothing more than glorified coffins because now the foot soldiers have the advantage and they can pick off the chariot riders. This is exactly what happened at the sea, the Red Sea, when the Lord took on the chariots of Pharaoh and caught them up in the mud of the Red Sea. And so with God fighting ahead of him, Barak defeated Sisera. Well, not quite. The Lord saved his biggest surprise for last when he raised up Jael. Had Barak trusted the Lord, 
uh, through the word of Deborah, had Barak acted with a manly faith and accepted his command, he would have been the one to capture and kill Sisera. But that honor fell to a little lady named Jael. Jael is, is little in the sense of unknown and totally unexpected to play any role in this fight. What we know about her is this. She is the wife of Heber the Kenite. Kenites, we saw that a couple of sermons ago. Kenites, uh, Othniel was from the Kenites. Those were Gentiles who had joined themselves to Israel out of devotion to the Lord. Caleb, the great famous Caleb, was a Kenite. But Heber had rejected the Lord and had moved himself away from the Kenites. So Heber had chosen sides. He had broken with the main branch of the loyal Kenites who were in the south. He had moved up north to Galilee, somewhere close to Jabin's area. He had made a peace treaty with the house of Jabin. Heber and his household were against the Lord and against Israel, and they were for Jabin, they were for Sisera. That was Heber the Kenite. But not Jael, the wife of Heber. She had remained loyal to the Lord. Where evil Sisera expected to find help and salvation there in the tents of Heber and Jael, he found instead treachery and doom. As with Ehud, so we see here, the Lord is a table-turner. He does the unexpected. Sisera cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years, and now Sisera dies himself a cruel death. Sisera humiliated Israel, and now Sisera is humiliated in his death. He's not shot down in a blaze of glory by mighty warriors in the battlefield. They could have sung songs about him then. No, no. Sisera is punched through with a common tent peg by the hand of a lowly woman. It doesn't get more inglorious than that. Can you see the Lord's endless ways and variety of coming up with methods to, to rescue us from our foes? This is, this is nothing for the Lord. He's creative in his saving ways. He uses rains and floods. He uses muck and mud. He uses a woman's hospitality and deep sleep, a hammer and a tent peg. Who'd have thunk it? The Lord himself, that's the message, brothers and sisters. The Lord himself is the great warrior God. He's the true honor of Israel. In him put your trust, beloved, because he is unstoppable. He will always come through for his people. And did you notice how Jael is praised by the Holy Spirit in Deborah's song? Verse 24 of chapter 5. Most blessed of women be Jael. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. You know, 21st century ears, especially Canadian ears, tend to cringe at that description, cringe at her actions and question their morality. But the living God doesn't cringe. He doesn't question. He praises her as a woman of worth. And why? 
because as an instrument in the hands of God, this woman did the will of the Lord and crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. This is a reminder of Genesis 3.15. The seed of the serpent's head will be crushed. And it's a foreshadowing of what Jesus the Savior would later do on the cross when he, he dealt that death blow to Satan. And later still, when he comes back riding on the clouds, that's what we're waiting for. That's the great advent still to come, right? When the Lord Jesus will come back on the clouds, when he will take up Satan and all of his followers and throw them into the lake of fire. We won't be embarrassed of that, will we? We won't cringe when that happens, will we? We will rejoice, for our salvation will be here at last. These are the three Israelite figures. Or there, there are three in this story, but only two foreshadow Christ in a positive way. Barak shows us what Christ is not. Hesitant. Uncertain. In need of direction. But Deborah speaks God's word faithfully and shows compassion to the helpless people exactly like the Lord Jesus would later do even more fully. And Jael, out of her, out of nowhere, arising out of nowhere in faith, going against her husband's wishes, her whole clan's wishes, and risking her own life, she chose to do the Lord's will and dealt a death blow to Satan's agent. Well, that reminds us, doesn't it, of Christ's first advent, Christmas. Where was Jesus born? In what circumstances did he arise? Was it not in obscurity, in the broken line of David? Didn't he rise out of backwater Nazareth where nobody was expecting anything? Didn't he have to go against his family's wishes? Didn't his mother and his brothers say, come away with us? Didn't they think he was insane? Didn't Jesus risk his own life to do the Lord's will and minister to God's people? This Savior, brothers and sisters, is the one who gave up his life in order to deal the final death blow to the devil and set his people free. This Savior is the true glory of God's people. He finds new and fresh ways, unexpected ways, to bring help to us, to bring salvation when we are in that rut of sin. If you trust in him, you can break out of that rut and live the life of the free. Amen.